this is Therapy-ish. My name is Aisha Creary. I am the clinic director at Crave Counseling, and I am so excited to have Natasha here with us today as we talk about depression in Black women. So in this episode, we will talk about navigating conversations with our friends, how to advocate for yourself in healthcare, and some tools that you can use to help navigate the world when you're struggling with depression. So Natasha, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, um, the university you're enrolled in, and the population you work with? I am nearing the end of my program, um, and the population that I work with has been couples, individuals, and teens so far. Okay. All right. So can you tell us a little bit about depression and what depression looks like and any key facts that you have about depression? So I've struggled with um, depression um, for over 15 years off and on. And some of those symptoms that I went through was insomnia, um, being irritable, closed off from family and friends, um, and just stressed. Okay. Just pretty much just remembering how I was raised to just be strong. You'll be okay. Absolutely. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So that strong Black woman complex, self-sacrificing. So what I did through the years of getting past my struggles of depression was dropping the word strong and just saying resilient. Okay. And using okay. the tools to get past depression. Okay. I'm glad you said that. We, I just, we just, so in my friend group, we, one of my friends asked us like, what are our three qualities? Right. And then. I told them before they gave me a response to telling me what they thought my three qualities was. I said, do not use the word strong. That is a trigger. And they were like, what? And I was like, just don't use the word strong right. to describe me because that's what people use to describe me. And usually when I do need to be weak, people do that. Like, it's okay. You're the strong friend. If anybody's going to figure it out, you're going to figure it out. And so I always ended up going back to the space of like, so if I'm the strong friend, who helps the strong one? Like, right. who helps the strong one when they're struggling? So I'm glad you said that. I don't like being described as strong. Yeah, me either. I, I, don't, I don't even like the word resilient. I don't like people calling me uh, dependable. I don't like none of those words. They're great words. They're not yeah. bad words. They just, they signify so much more for me or you or any other black woman in the world, because if you're dependable, that means you're going to self-sacrifice. Right. If you are resilient, that means that you can endure anything. If you are strong, that means that you're going to see it through no matter how, how hard it hurts. And I don't like none of that. Right. Me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I read this article that basically stated that black women experience their depression differently in comparison to other races. So I read that black women with symptoms of depression, more often report sleep disturbances, self-criticism, and irritability more than any other stereotypical symptoms such as depressed moods, according to this study done by NYU, Rory Myers College of Nursing and Columbia University School of Nursing. So tell me your thoughts on what they came what they described as the non-traditional or non-stereotypical symptoms of depression. I think 
that our symptoms as a black woman stems from the culture itself, mm-hmm. um, what was modeled to us. And what I mean by that is our mothers, aunts, grandmothers, going back to that strong mentality. And so what I mean is um, taking care of the household, wife duties, raising kids, all while, while struggling and having depress, depressing symptoms, but nobody is taking care of that person because they're too busy taking care of everybody in the family. And it goes back to that word of being um, mm-hmm. strong. So I feel like there's a connection with that that makes our um, symptoms a bit different and a struggle from other cultures. Absolutely. So to touch on what you just said, some of the symptoms listed included self-criticism and irritability. Mm-hmm. And this is an aside, but I'm going to circle back and bring it back together. So what bothers me the most right now about the comedy space is how Black women are portrayed in, in comedy, right? There are so many comedians, male comedians, who mimic their experiences with Black women. Right. Black, they're Black mothers, they're Black aunts, they're Black grandmothers. And in the, the, the mockery of Black women in comedy, it always stems back to the aggressive parts of Black women. And so, again, a lot of the comedy hints towards irritability and it hints towards some of, you know, just some of the symptoms that are not traditionally listed in the DSM. And so when you go back and you think about a lot of the comedy, a lot of the comedian skits that's done on social media that we see again that is being mimicked and revisited by people who were raised by Black women, it goes to that irritability. So if we go back and we look at comedy and then we relate it to mental health, a lot of times your mother telling you, I told you to take that trash out, I'm irritated because she's so tired. She's she's functioning in her depressive state and all she really needs is for you to take care of her or to take care of these things so that that's one less thing that I have to feel defeated about throughout the day because as black women, a lot of our depression stems from feeling defeated. Like we go into these workplaces and we slap on this straight hair. We get these, these perms so that we can fit into these work environments. And then we go from that to where we are forced to tone down our firmness and our responses to some of the things that we're asked to do as black women. And then we go from that to, I'm now still the head of household. I'm still disciplining my children and I still have to find time to take care of myself. And all I need is for you to take the chicken out the fridge. I don't get to be vulnerable. I don't get to be tired. I don't get to be any of that. And so when these these videos come up, yeah, it's funny, I guess, but a lot of these stories are rooted in Sleep disturbances, self-criticism, irritability, all of the things that we are seeing people mock us about. And it's, we tired. Yep. We tired. I agree. Um, And so when it goes back to the the manual that you was asking me about, I think um, that should be redone as far as going back to get everybody on the same page of our culture and and becoming more knowledgeable to understand why it's different. 
And until then, there will be a question mark. Absolutely. So the study also touches on the fact that Black women in the study with greater depression symptoms were more likely to report somatic symptoms, including fatigue, insomnia, decreased libido, and self-criticism symptoms, including self-hate, self-blame. So again, they experience these symptoms more than they experience any other symptom listed in the DSM. Um, and they experience it more so than most people experience feelings of hopelessness and depressed moods. And so they also reported as experiencing adhedonia. I always say that word mm. wrong, but essentially the inability to experience pleasure and irritability. And so how have you seen that with your friends, your family members or clients, or even just within yourself when it comes to when you get to those low states, how have you experienced those? And then how do you see those with like clients? I've definitely experienced um, insomnia, um, lack of appetite, um, those top two. And I've come across friends and family that had those same symptoms and it took for me to check on them to see what was wrong. And either they was in denial or they didn't realize it until I brought it to their attention. Ooh, that denial question is, <laughs> that I, that denial statement, I feel like is wrapped up in religion. In religion? Mm-hmm. You think so? It's wrapped up in religion and it's wrapped up in the culture, right? Like we're taught that you're supposed to be strong, but then... We're also taught that you should just pray about it and God is going to make sure that everything is good. That's literally to just bring awareness to we minimize our experiences with our moods and our states because we're taught religion will fix everything. And we're also taught that you have no choice but to be strong because you are the only person that's going to hold this family together. And even if you want to be tired, even if you want to take a mental health day, even if you want to be isolate, if even if you want to isolate, close all the blinds and do all the things, you still have a family to manage. You still got kids to take care of. All right. And, and another statement that my mom and grandmother used to make was, um, oh, you're smart. You know everything. You, you'll get over it. You'll be okay. So as I got older, it was like, no, I, I don't have to be okay. I don't want to be okay. Today is a bad day. This is what I have going on. <laughs> but that is very true. You know, being called smart is a trigger for me. I didn't say that earlier because for some that might be a bad thing, but like being smart, has I think. Uh, go ahead. What you about to say? It has nothing to do with. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, it has. It's it almost has like nothing saying to do with it. because you're smart, you cannot experience. Um, those low moods, um, whatever symptoms you may have from depression because you're smart. That doesn't, that's not how it works. I mean, and then just the word smart in itself when it comes to how, you know, depending on how you're described, how you present in the world, it, some of that is rooted in racism too. So it's like even somebody calling me smart, again, I think that's like that, um, epigenetics that generational trauma and then too i think it could i mean depending who it's coming from it could be a way of being cynical low-key absolutely absolutely but i'm not gonna go down that <laughs> i'm not gonna go down that rabbit hole but that word is a trigger and i've i've been in spaces where i would just 
as an entrepreneur, as an educator, as someone who didn't ever, I never really had to work hard for anything because I, I had to train myself in certain things because my handwriting is so bad. So people used to think that I was smart. Not that I'm not. Not that I'm not. We're not just. We're not. No. I not discrediting that. But it, it was. It was rude. It was like I had to train myself to get this the first go around because if I don't get it, I'm not going to be able to read my notes. And that was hard for me. And so when people are like you're smart, and I'm like I work ten times as hard as you. It looks easy, but it's not. So when it comes to people calling you smart, people think that it's easy. It's easy. Like there's no pressures. Like you said, like none of these symptoms. Oh, well, you know, you'll figure it out. You, you're smart. You know how to go get yeah. help. You know how to go get help. Yep. Those keywords. You know how to ask for what you need. Well, I'm telling you, I need to be weak. Yeah. So the article continues to touch on how research exploring variations in depressed symptoms has been predominantly conducted by white people. Increasing the chances that depression will be missed among racial and ethnic minority populations. What can we do in our communities and with our clients to help advocate for this or even cross-train other clinicians who may be working with us or the population we serve? I think first it was it would need to start with changes in the community and that goes back to helping others become knowledgeable of the culture and and what comes with that, what that looks like, because it's different for, for our culture to get a better understanding. And as far as training for clinicians, the same, because so when I was, I used to work in the school district, I would get a, um, a lot of kids to work with one-on-one mm -hmm. students that were um, African-American. Um, oftentimes the counselors would send them to me and the counselors would be white, of course, but there was no connection. So it was like, hey, I'm going to send Bobby in there to you. Maybe you can see what's wrong. So here I am telling you what's wrong, but that's not my job. And I'm, you know, somewhat trying to tell you, hey, you don't understand him because you don't understand the culture. You you just don't get it. Yeah. So um, that goes back to that particular culture, not understanding the black culture. Mm -hmm. Um and women, black women with depression. I could go on, but I've experienced some things. So <laughs> that, yeah. that's a touchy subject. Okay, I hear you. I hear you. I understand. I'm reading between the lines. Yeah, so <laughs> so kind of to piggyback up on what you're saying is that I too experienced that as a school counselor where I would get kids, they'd be like, such and such won't take their hat off, and such and such won't um won't do X, Y, and Z. And the minute they come in the office, I'd be like, What's wrong with your lineup? You know, like, because we we have this relationship and they're like, man, miss, you see my lineup. That's why I want to take my hoodie off. And they just wouldn't let me be. And it's just like, yeah, your mental health is tied to how you present in the world. Of course, that goes back to being rooted in slavery. Um, Sunday's best. Always having to look good so that you look good on display. But I'll leave that alone. <laughs> um, but yeah, you're right. But then. It goes back to like, there are some people who work in the communities, but they don't immerse themselves in the community on a day to day. Now, don't get me wrong. Like this finna sound real bad, but I'm gonna say it anyway. Sometimes we don't want that. 
sometimes we don't want people in our communities. Sometimes we don't want to invite everybody to the cookout. And that's okay. Like we get to do that. Just like everybody else don't invite us to their cookouts. Okay. But on the flip side of that, it's like, how can you say that you want to serve these communities and you want to serve these populations, but on a regular day, you're not in the community. Listening, listening to rap is not a reflection of what's happening in our neighborhoods. That's those experiences that you're hearing on the radio. Some of those are anom anomalies. There are a lot of, there's a lot of black excellence in the neighborhoods and all we need is just a little bit of funding. There is a lot of creativity in the community and in it the is. culture. And we don't need you to make the video go viral. What we need is for you to give us our flowers so that we can get out of our state of depression, so that we can get out of our state of trauma, you know, all the things that comes with, like you said, being black. But it's hard because one, we have to be tasked with the job of teaching. But when we saw that with COVID-19, you want me to teach you diversity and, you know, we want you want me to teach you a little bit about the culture and you want to be a fly on the wall, but yet you don't want to take the very thing you're asking us to train you on and actually implement it, not only in your career in these work-related spaces, but even in your day-to-day. How can you say that you are, as a clinician, serving people of color and you're not outside? Right. Because, and, and to be outside means you're going to continuously be outside and continue to learn until you get to that point to say, hey, I get it now. Mm -hmm. I can see you. I hear you. I understand you. Yeah. And of course, you know, we got to tread lightly with that because gatekeeping is real. Like, with um, sororities and fraternities and like how stuff is starting to become overwhelming with that and like the pivoteers, which only HBCUs have those. Like we still have to gatekeep for some of the things that are near and dear to our hearts that has allowed us to be authentic in ourselves. We need you guys to understand what we're going through and the struggles and because we have such a shortage of black clinicians in the community, you're going to somehow, some way, see one of us. Or because the local agencies have people that don't look like us in them, because people say, I'm committed to working in these neighborhoods, and they don't look like the people in the neighborhood. So the people in the neighborhoods are still struggling with the care that they're receiving. And so, like, how do we teach, but also gatekeep, but also keep yeah. safe spaces, but also honor our culture at the same time. So that's why I'm like, it's a lot that needs to be done, but it's it's kind of hard to do it. Um, but there, of course, are ways that we as a community can do it, right? Like, for example, the positions that we're in, right? We're in private practice. So we get to go out and do research in our communities because these are our clients. They trust us. And we're always transparent in our care with them. We never handle them lightly. We never have clients that come in and say, well, these are my symptoms. And we say, oh, that's okay. No, we, we say, no, no, no. You just, you're not just going to brush past that. Let's, let's backtrack. Yeah. I heard what you said in between the lines. And we're going to acknowledge that this is how you feel in this space. And I'm going to give you the space to be weak. 
So when it comes to that, I think we just got to, we got to tread lightly, but also we have to figure out what that's going to look like. And I, again, I think that us being able to do research is key. Bringing more programs into HBCUs, like for example, we have Houston Tillerton here in Austin. Mm -hmm. Houston Tillerton doesn't currently have a counseling program, but then we also have St. Edwards. We have um, UT. We have Texas A&M Central Texas. And then we also have Lamar University gets a lot of students here. And then um, Texas State. None of those are HBCUs. Right. But all of those programs or all of those schools and universities have counseling programs. And the only HBCU here within the city doesn't have one. Mm -hmm. That says a lot. Yeah. But we have to, we as a community get to go and say, hey, HT, how can I help serve you so that we can serve the population that we serve? Because we see that there's a shortage and students aren't going into counseling because they don't trust UT because of the historical racism there. People aren't driving to San Marcos and people aren't driving to Kalina. St. Edwards is expensive. So how can we help ourselves in our communities? And again, it goes, like you, you yeah. said. I think implementing those changes and, and ongoing training for clinicians and it's going to take a lot. Yeah. Okay. I know I talked a lot. My bad. <laughs> <laughs> so we got two questions left. We're going to kind of go through those. So in hearing all of this, what do you think this means for the diagnostic manual of mental health disorders? Do you believe that some of our clients are coming to us misdiagnosed from their healthcare providers? Yes, I do. Tell me more. What do you think? What do you typically see in women who come to the black women that come to therapy that are clearly depressed? We know they depressed because we know what it looked like. What do you typically see as a diagnosis in those clients or have heard of diagnosing most black women come in with? That, I got a the, few. When when they come from other health providers? Yeah, like their physicians, other clinicians that they've worked with, and just things that they've been told in their childhood. As far as what they've been told from their health providers, it's, it's, it's been pretty much like, I hear you, and it's, it's really nothing to worry about. And what I mean is, um, how can I explain it? Um, That's all the explanation okay. needed. I'm like... <laughs> That how many times have you been told that? Twice since I've been in the state of Texas. I, I can't even you I can't count on my fingers the number of times I've been told that by healthcare providers. I can't myself in my young 32 years of living. That's not a thing. That oh, it's nothing to worry about. When I'm demanding additional care. I'm demanding my level of care be the same level of care that you give to somebody else, even in mental health. And some of my clients would even say, they just sat there and just looked at me. And there was a long pause. They didn't know what to say. But they don't go over diagnosis with them. And I'm just over here like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but they don't go over diagnosis with them. I get so many clients that come and they say, I've been struggling with depression since I was 16, but my doctor said I got bipolar. I was about to say that. that that's, that's, what they, yeah. that's what I'm waiting on you to say. That's the I key word. On the, I got bipolar. Okay, so let's talk about it. What, that, that, what, what tells you you got bipolar? That word has been used loosely. Absolutely. 
And then you just be like, okay, we get them in therapy. And we're like, okay, well, what are your triggers? Oh, you know, when people do this, I, I just get mad. And I'll be like... And then I go from getting mad, like how I respond to my anger, meaning I went, I beat this girl up, I did the things, I did all the things, right? And now, all of a sudden, I feel sad because I know I shouldn't have done that. But it's like, does that make you bipolar? Or does that mean that you were... You had a stressful event happen and it triggered your inner child and your inner trauma that led to you feeling guilty because of your response to it. Because in your mind, you should you should be better than that. Right. So the sadness and the feelings of guilt is fair, but that doesn't mean that you are bipolar. Yeah. That just means that culturally speaking, that clinician didn't understand what you were struggling with in that moment. Right. And someone would say, oh, um, I'm bipolar. And I would say, well, who told you that? Well, um, the last therapist I went to said I was bipolar and, and to, you know, look into that. And it's like, okay. That's one that we usually get. Uh, another one that we sometimes get uh, is schizophrenia, which is odd to me because is it schizophrenia? What's the what's the there's another one that we get traditionally, and it's usually an acute reaction to stress. It's usually not the diagnosis they give. I don't. I, I'm not gonna say it's schizophrenia because I think. Nurse? Mm -mm. Okay. I'm not gonna say it's schizophrenia. I can't think of the diagnosis, but there's like another key diagnosis okay. that a lot of black clients come in with, um, and it's usually like an acute reaction to stress. Like yeah. something happened, and I went awol. I decided to shut down. I decided to isolate. I decided to not respond to anybody. I decided to do this. And because I did this, all of these people are saying that I'm crazy. And it's like, I'm wore out. I don't have any more fight in me. I'm overwhelmed. I'm tired. I'm depressed. I just need to be. And so I, a lot of our clients do come to us misdiagnosed, especially yeah. our kids. Um, bipolar disorder. Uh, I got multiple personality disorder. And it's like, do you dissociate or are there triggers that's leading to you responding to your emotions in a certain way? Because multiple personality disorder or, B, you know, and BPD, those are two very extreme labels to put on people. But it's also something where it's like, Let's really let's really sit down and have a conversation about yeah. what that actually is and how is that presenting in you in your space? You know, how does that present in your psyche and you know the level of care you're getting? So we said all that to say is a lot of our clients come in misdiagnosed, which is why a lot of healthcare providers are getting away from using insurance because you have to provide a diagnosis. Um, and then I always tell clients like, do you? Do you know what you were diagnosed in your pre with your previous therapist? Do you know? Um, did y'all talk about it? Or even with the psychiatrist, what is your diagnosis? And it's like, they're putting this in your chart. And if you don't know what's going in your chart, it could be harming you later. But again, I think because so many people come to us misdiagnosed, we don't want to keep giving them diagnosis all over the place. Because if they came in with bipolar disorder and we're reassessing and we're doing screeners and we're doing the work and we're using that cultural perspective to go along with it. Mm -hmm. And then we give them another diagnosis, but they're still going back to the psychiatrist that's giving them that old diagnosis. That client now has two diagnoses listed in their symptoms. 
And if they try to do anything later, such as like get life insurance policies or, you know, some of the latter things, that's going to later either cost them more or prevent them from being able to get it. So, okay, last question. So I want to briefly touch on functional depression in this same conversation. We get so many clients and so many of our friends who experience depression, but because of survival, they can't do what they need to take care of themselves. What language should we use when we notice the women around us are operating in functional depression? And then what resources can some of these women get from their employers? I would say the language we could use is daily life challenges. Elaborate. What is it? What do you mean? Um, the challenges that comes with life and responsibilities. That could be um, from being a parent, taking care of kids, um, work related, your spouse or your person, um, all of that combined. Daily life stressors is fair. Those things definitely aid in our experiences with functional depression. But see, some people don't even want to use that word. What, daily life stressors? Or, de or depression. So that's why I said daily life challenges. And that's just okay. from knowing other people that don't want people to know. But that goes you know. back to self-criticism, right, right. which is one of the symptoms listed in that article. We, we self-criticize so much so that we don't feel like we should have the opportunity to be weak or to be going through things. Yeah. And that goes um, to that high function in depre depression. Yeah. I think language that people should be able to be comfortable with is that I don't have the capacity right now. Because a lot of times we get employers that's like, you don't have kids. You, what are you doing? Or if you even if you do, it's like, well, such and such is staying late. Well, I don't have the same capacity that such and such does. Such and such, and such is not a single mom. Such and such is not carrying the black tax of the black community of the family members in their family that's not successful. My capacity is very different. Yeah. So I get to say, I'm, I'm thankful that you think that I would be great for this opportunity at work and that I can take on this task. But right now I don't have the capacity for that. Um, even with our friends, sometimes our friends call us and they're like dumping on us. And it's like, hold on, sis. Hold on, friend. Hold on, mom. Hold on, grandma. Hold on, niece, sister, auntie, whoever, uncle, cousin, whoever. I just don't have the capacity for that right now. So or even ask first, hey, do you have the mental capacity to listen to me vent? Instead of, like you said, dumping. So, But you and I both know how we do with our friends. We call our friends, be like, what you doing? Oh, I'm laying in the bed. Oh, you ain't doing nothing. Let me tell you about... No, just because <laughs> I'm not doing anything doesn't mean that I have the capacity. So right. even if you did say that, your friend's still going to try to drop it in your lap. Well, no, not me. I, I done made some changes. <laughs> <laughs> they used to. That's fair. Uh, so capacity is a word that I think that is safe to use for us, even in workspaces with our friends, with family, just in general. Using the word capacity is very different than... It's, it's very different than just giving all of your details. You can literally just say, I don't have the capacity right now when it comes to anything. Another word that or source of language that we can probably use is I need help. It takes a lot for people 
some people to say they need help. But I think that because we've stigmatized the word help, because help could look different. Yeah. I remember like when I first moved to Austin, I was struggling like really bad. I literally just called all my friends in Houston and was like, I need y'all to come to Austin. I I can't do it no more. They stopped everything that they were doing and came to Austin. Now, granted, like had I had just said I'm struggling, they'd have been like, well, we don't know how to help the strong friends. So what do you want us to do? Or they would have just been like, oh, you'll figure it out. Because right. I didn't tell them what I needed. So even in just using the word, I need help, it don't have to necessarily be that language specifically. You can just say, hey, I'm going through a rough patch. Can we do a girl's night and we just all lay across the couch and just drink wine and just, I just need y'all around me. I just need my circle. I just need my tribe. Support. Yeah. And so I think that using a language of like, I need this from you as my friend. Yeah. So that's a good way. Another language is no. A bold no. <laughs> no is the sentence. No is the sentence. It is. And I get to be weak because a lot of times be like, oh, you're the strong friend. If anybody else can figure it out, you're going to figure it out. It's just like right now in this moment, I need to be weak and you're not allowing me to be that. I'm not asking for pity. I'm not asking for you to, to give me anything. I'm not asking for you to support me in any way. Other than I just need to be weak. So, uh, and resources from their employers. So, I think um, employers should add mental health days and put together something for women monthly where everybody gets together and they can get a massage at work or have the. I like how you're stealing what I done put on y'all calendar. <laughs> <laughs> I like how you you stealing what I don't put on the calendar. Okay, I was like, okay. <laughs> so have the option to have massage therapists at the site where they work to get a massage, and or have a um, give them an option to get a percentage off, and they go on, on their free time or have a lot of time frame. Those are definitely some good self-care yeah. activities that an employer can implement. I think some additional resources that employers have that most people don't know that they have is um, employee assistance programs. So in the employee assistance programs, the employers will cover mental health services for mm -hmm. you. For example, some large corporations offer the ability to... Or they, they offer like eight free sessions or six free yeah. sessions or three free sessions or 25 or 30, depending on the company, to where you can literally find a therapist on their network of, clin of clinicians that they have assigned to their contract and go for, go for free therapy. Some people say like, I don't need therapy. And it's just like, you don't know what you need until you try it. Just like your parents just like, eat them green beans. I don't want those. You don't know what you want until yeah. you try it. <laughs> you don't know what you want and need until you try it. So the employee assistance program is always a great option. Um, employers would kill me for this, for me saying this out loud, but I'm going to say it anyway. But um, using your FMLA, a lot of people don't utilize it. And we see so many other races and so many other cultures use it. But when it comes to us, it's like, I can't take off work because they need me here and they need me there. And that self-sacrificing, that self-criticism, that irritability. But what good are you to your team if you're going off on people? Right. What good are you to your team if you're not healthy? So take the time because 
these programs were created for you to use. But you can't use the time off if you're not going to therapy or if you're not going to your uh, physician to prove yeah, that yeah. this is what you need it for. Give us the paperwork. Because I'm going to use mine. And I've used it. <laughs> Give us, I've seen so many times where I have coworkers like just disappear for six months every couple of years. And it's like, how do you get six months off? They'd be like, oh, I went on leave. I took a sabbatical. Or like, I went on leave and I, you know, I took care of myself and now I feel better. And so I think that people really have to start using the resources available to them. And again, please don't kill me. You know how they like to assassinate people that give out too much information. So again, using the employee assistance programs and the FMLA, I think are, are really yeah. good resources for people. Yeah. Again, if you do FMLA, you kind of got to have a, you kind of have to have a diagnosis, but again, talk to your healthcare provider because symptomology like depression or or diagnosis such as depression anxiety these are things that can deem a a real reason for you to be on medical leave but if you're not going to get help when you get to your wits end we normally quit we just quit instead of taking leave we be like I'm quit I'm not going back to that place and it's just like yeah. take leave why would you why would you not take care of yourself before going into another job? Because you don't know what that environment going to look like anyway. And if you got so many stressors at home, you quitting is not going to keep food on the table. But if you you have FMLA readily available to you, your job is secure, you cannot be fired. And if you have short-term disability, when you sign up for your benefits plan readily available to you, if you go and leave, you're going to get paid. Now, it's not going to be that full amount based on depending on which short-term leave payout you choose. But those are two resources yep. for you to take time off to take care of yourself. So you just got to follow the guidelines with the paperwork now. Yeah, but, this yeah. is not this is not me giving you advice <laughs> to leave your job and to say, I'm just going to go and leave. That's not what that podcast. is. <laughs> that is not what that is. You have to make sure that you know what you're doing when you're using these resources and making sure that you advocate for yourself and make sure that you have conversations with your healthcare providers about what is in your medical records, because all of this stuff is in alignment. If you don't do what you need to do and you try to go on leave and you're not going to see a therapist, don't show up at the office for one session saying, can you, can you sign off on my paperwork? Cause it's a no. Yeah. It's a no. So, but Thank you for talking about this with me today, Natasha. You're welcome. <laughs> I had fun. I think it was a really good topic. And I think that, well, hopefully it resonates with someone. And hopefully that people can take some of the things that we talked about and use it. Yeah. So thank you. You're welcome.